Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We refer to those as bumper videos, and we show those just a, a little transition point. It gives me a chance to sip a drink of water, catch my breath a little bit, um, set up what we're going to talk about, make it kind of fun, entertain you a little bit. It's always interesting, though. Sometimes it, it's not a good thing for me to show these because Lord knows where it's going to lead you. Um, when I did the uh, Black Widow series and we had the spider crawling with the creepy music, I had, I had one lady that wouldn't even come to church. She's like, I'm not going in there with that spider crawling around. Well, so last week I get a text message from a good friend of mine, dear friend of mine, and she's, she, her whole thing, it set her off because she spent the whole service trying to remember the last dwarf's name. She couldn't come up with Bashful. She, she named them all. She said, there's one I can't get, and Dee Dee came up with it. So I can only imagine that she spent the entire time that I was talking going through trying to figure out the names of the dwarfs. So maybe it's not a great idea that I show those, but um, I love them. Shelby put that together, and that's pretty cool. Um, so glad to have you with us. Can I just start this by saying I love you very much, and I'm really glad that you decided to spend the morning with us. It's a pleasure to to have you and, and to be with you and to worship our great God together. We're in this series called Off to Work We Go, and we're talking about work. Last week we talked about work in a perfect world. Uh, today we're going to talk about work in a little different setting. I want to start, though, I want to start with a Time Magazine uh, edition, April 2nd, 1965. They did an entire edition of Time Magazine dedicated to technology and its impact on the workplace and on our world. Um, and there were, some, there were some interesting quotes that came out of that news article, uh, news magazine article. I want to I read some of those too. I thought it would be kind of fun to listen to some of the predictions that they made in 1965. Are you ready for these? Automation will eventually bring about a 20-hour work week, perhaps within a century, thus creating a mass leisure class. Is that you? Are you in the mass leisure class? How about this? Some of the more radical prophets foresee the time when as little as 2% of the workforce will be employed. How many of you are in the 2%? Right? You're in that 2%? Um, or is it just me? I'm just the only one. So 55 years after this article, this magazine comes out, things have changed a little bit. You know, things are they're different, wouldn't you say? There, there are multiple computers in our homes now. Used to be, just back in the day, everybody had one television, right? You remember that some of you are way too young to know what I'm talking about. So some of you remember when there was one television in the house. And if you had one television, if it was color, you were rich. That's what I remember. Color TV, that's cool. And then people started getting two televisions in their house. I would come home from my friend, Mom, they've got two televisions in their house. And so, you know, sociologists started to track those kind of things. I would love to hear a study. I'm sure that they've done it. I'd like to hear whether or not there are more computers in our houses now than televisions. 
would be interesting to hear the, the result of that. I don't know the answer. Probably somebody will have that Googled for me before the service is over. But um, technology has changed things for us. Let me just show you how much technology has changed. I don't know when this picture was taken. I think it was the mid to late 60s, but it could be as late as the, the late 60s. Um, and I'm going to use some numbers here, and some of you are going to have no idea what I'm talking about, but others of you are going to know exactly what I'm talking about. That is a 5 megabyte computer. Five megabytes. Some of you are like, Brett, I have no idea what you're talking about. Trust me, a lot of people in the room are amazed. Some of us, we type hello on our cell phones. That's five meg right there, right? I mean, it's just nothing. Five meg's nothing. Um, You see that little column in the middle of that, the part where it looks like a TV? There's a column there. That is actually 50 24-inch discs stacked one on top of the other to give them five megabytes of data. I just did a little thinking this week. When I saw that picture, I, I, I dug into my laptop bag and I, I brought out this bad boy. You see that thing circled in red? That is a one terabyte thumb drive. One terabyte. And let me put that in perspective because you're like, Brett, megabyte, terabyte, I don't get it. Just let me, this will help this make sense to you and this will show you how far we've come technology-wise. The little thing on the right, which I've put my key ring there so that you can see just how big that is, that little thing on the right will hold 200,000 times as much data as the thing on the left. You think we haven't changed a little bit? In just months, uh, or in just uh, moments, if you want the answer to a question like, are there more computers in our house these days or more televisions, you can Google it and you can get the answer. I, I love going to see my mom and dad, and my dad just keeps us entertained to no end, but I was watching a race with him one time. He likes NASCAR, so I'm, you know, I was watching the race with him, and uh, I'm sitting there. I had my laptop in my lap, and my phone was close by, and they did a feature on one of the drivers and, and you know, the house he lived in, and it was pretty nice, and it led my dad to wonder out loud, wonder what he makes a year, and he looked at me, and he said, I wonder what he makes a year. So I grabbed my phone and I said, Siri, hey Siri, how much does so-and-so make in a year? And I mean, Siri spit it right out, you know, like he makes this much money. And my dad is so funny because my mother has an iPhone. My dad has a little flip phone. He can't do all that stuff. He's a truck driver. He, he gave up on that a long time ago. He's got an eighth grade education. He's a simple man, okay, simple man. He's smart about other stuff, but the computer thing he doesn't get. And so he just trusts my mother for all the answers for stuff like that. And he just, I'm sitting on his right, she's sitting on his left. And when I gave him the answer from my phone, he turned and looked at my mother with this condescending look like, why can't you do that, right? Why can't you talk to Siri like that? Um, you know, there was a time that you would sit down and you would write a letter, longhand. You would carve out some time. It would take you a little bit. It might take you half an hour. You would be careful with your penmanship because somebody was going to have to read your handwriting. You would get done, and you'd have those little imprints in your fingers. You remember those? And, and then you would, you would fold that letter up, and you'd put it in an envelope. You'd address it and lick a stamp and put it on there and put it in a mailbox. And miraculously, two or three days later, that would show up at its intended destination, you hope, and somebody takes it out and reads in your hand what you had to say. But they had to wait two or three, sometimes longer, days to get that. Not so now. You sit down, you want to write a letter to somebody, you bang it out on a computer, you hit send on the send button, and it instantly gets to its desired target. What freaked me out was when I realized you could add attachments to your emails. 
Oh, that was a big day for me. Big day. I mean, I was, I, I, that was like revolutionary. Um, almost on par with the, when I first saw my first fax machine. When I saw the first fax machine, and I, the phone rang, I'm, I'm watching this thing, the phone rings, and then this paper starts coming out of it, and somebody said, yeah, that's coming from another city. And my, my mind was blown. I couldn't believe it. So that just shows how simple I am. But here, let me just, I digress. Here's something else. This is something you have in your purse or your pocket. If you don't have an iPhone, you got something similar to it that can do probably the same stuff. Um, but the power in that little device, everything that I just talked about, texting, talking to Siri, sending an email, um, and more. I used my phone yesterday to get me somewhere I didn't know where I was going. I, I've used my phone to look. I checked the weather a couple of times yesterday and once this morning. I woke up early, early, and it was raining, and I looked at my phone to see if it was going to quit anytime soon, and I realized it's not, so I got wet. Um, but you can use your phone for any number of things, right? And you've got one of those in your purse or your pocket or your hand right now. Some of you might even have it, your Bible open you know, on your phone right now. Let me just put that in perspective for you. The power that is harnessed in your cell phone, the computing power in your cell phone is greater than the, the computing power they used, they had to put the man on the moon. Think about that. In your hand, you have more computing power than they used to get the man on the moon. That just fascinates me. And here we are, 55 years later, and work is a breeze, right? Because of technology. We got all this technology. I mean, we're in the 2%. We're the leisure class. Isn't anybody working anymore because technology's doing it all? Maybe not. I think that some of the challenges that work fixed with technology just basically created new problems for us, right? Because what happened is technology gave us a little bit more time. It saves us some time over here. And you would think that we would say to ourselves, well, maybe I could take it easy over here. That's generally not what we do. We've saved some time over here. Now I'm just going to work all the much more harder over here on this thing. And it just seems like we just go, go, go all the time. Instead of recognizing some leisure, instead of recognizing some Sabbath, instead of praying or reading our Bible or doing something else, we're busy, busy, busy doing a lot of other stuff. And, and so technology is good, but it's also bad. So last week we kicked off this series talking about work in a perfect world. And we spent most of our time in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 looking at the creation account and we discovered some things about work. One of the things that we discovered is that God worked. We, we looked at a passage last week that, that twice it used the word relative to God that he worked, which is interesting. Second thing we learned is that work existed in a perfect world. Now, I think that that's somewhat revolutionary for a lot of us. I think most of us probably have grown up under the assumption that we got work when Adam and Eve sinned. Like before, we probably, most of us, if I'd polled you before the series started, you probably, and I said, did work happen before the fall or after the fall? Most of us, I think, would have answered that question after the fall. I think most of us have this idea that work is the product or the punishment that comes because of Adam and Eve's sin. But that is not necessarily the case. Um, we learned that last week. And then last week, we had fun with Legos. I talked about the idea, I talked about, uh, you know, painted a picture for you of a little boy or a little girl. It's their birthday or it's Christmas time and they get a present and the present is a set of Legos and they get the box 
and it comes time they get it home and they're going to dump it out on the table. We hope they don't dump it out on the floor, right parents? Have you ever stepped on a Lego? You meet Jesus in a whole new way when you step on a Lego, right? And Jesus finds out that you knew words that he didn't know you knew until you step on a Lego, right? But he goes from, or she goes from, the chaos that's in the box. I'm going to build these Legos, and there's a, you know, there's a little instruction kit, and, and they can kind of work through it. And it's really cool. Actually, if you ever see one of these, it's really cool how they do that. And piece by piece, they begin to bring, out of the chaos, they, they begin to bring order. And at some point, they finish their project, and they have something like this helicopter, which I just think is really cool. I was sharing it with my little buddy down here this morning. And, and here's what's really interesting about that. We, we have chaos that comes into order, and then there's satisfaction, right? It works. It moves. It, fe- it funnels my imagination or it fuels my imagination, and I can put it on my shelf or I can put it on my bookshelf or on my dresser, and I can look at it, and I can show my parents what I did, and I can get great satisfaction. And so last week we talked about chaos, order, and satisfaction, and, and we see this in the creation account. When, when God takes the earth that is described as um, formless and empty and dark, and he created continents and oceans and trees and all these vegetation and mountains and animals and beautiful things, he creates order out of the chaos. And then he says, it is good. But he doesn't stop there. He says, it's very good. Chaos, order, satisfaction. But something happened in Genesis 3 something that theologians refer to as the fall. God created Adam and Eve, and he put them in the garden to work it and care for it, and he gave them one boundary, one one commandment. And I have had people write me emails angry at God and kind of angry at me, even though I had nothing to do with it. Um, They're like, Brett, why did God put that tree in the middle of the garden? He messed everything up. The garden's perfect. It's beautiful. It's, it's everything that you could want. And then he goes and puts that tree in the middle of it, and he tells everybody not to touch it. Why did he do that? And everybody knows what happens next. And I could tell you why he did it. I actually think, I told him in the other service, I actually think that God putting that in the garden is the second most beautiful thing God ever did for us outside of Jesus dying and raising for us. It would take me a whole sermon to explain that to you. But trust me when I tell you, it's a very good thing that he put that tree in the garden. But when he did, Adam and Eve, we all know what happened. Instead of trusting God, Adam and Eve partook from the fruit of that tree. And they ate it. And then sin entered the world. And from that moment, our world has been broken and warped and messed up ever since. So now we work in a broken world. And that's where our conversation is going to lead us this morning. Work in a broken world. Um, On the one hand, we know that work is good. We know that it's a gift from God. We know that work is something that he's given us. We know that we reflect the image of God when we work because God was a worker, and when we work, we reflect that image. On the other hand, many of us have had a very, very different experience with work. Some of us look at it as drudgery. Some of us hate the idea of going to work. Some of you can't stand your boss, can't stand the people you work with, don't like where you work, don't like the hours you work, don't like when you work. I mean, nothing of it makes any, anything good for you. And it's, it's, I think for a lot of us, it's, it's something to be endured. We just kind of, 
We, we just kind of hold on to the weekend when we get some time to do what we want to do before we have to go back to work again. Now you might say, Brett, that's a little strong for me. That's not how I look at work. But sometimes I go through a season where I get stressed. Sometimes I, I go through a season where I might get a little burned out or anxious about the future. Others might say, well, my work has been, you know, I'm successful. I'm making pretty good money. I'm winning at work. You know, if you want to define it that way, I'm winning. I'm making some money. But I think it's possible for us to use work to try to do something for us that God never intended for work to do. My hope today is to show you that there, is some, there are some real valid reasons for the way we look at work the way we do. Uh, I also hope that you would be encouraged that no matter where you find yourself in this conversation, whether you really like your job or whether you, you really don't like your job, um, I hope that you find that you can get into a relationship with your work where you're actually bringing your very best to bear every single day. And I think if you'll just give me a few minutes, I can hopefully change your attitude on some things. We're going to take a look at three realities of work in a broken world, and then we're going to talk about what is God's place? How is he involved? What, what's his role in all of it? So Genesis chapter 3, God is beginning to explain and describe for Adam and Eve the consequences of their decision to rebel against him. There are consequences. You know that as well as I do. If you're a parent, if your kids disobey, there has to be a consequence. They have to learn. They have to know that they have to obey. And so God is not unlike us in that regard. He's, he's explaining the consequences. He's spelling it out. This is what happens when you don't trust me. And they have specifically to do with the work that Adam and Eve will do. I draw your attention to Genesis 3, verse 17, the second part. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. Now, that is strong language. Cursed is the ground. In other words, it's no longer going to respond the way it has responded before this sin that you did. It is not going to produce the same way. The full blessing of God has been removed from this ground. Listen, anytime God takes his blessing away from something, it's not as good. Heaven will be the experience of the full blessing of God. I don't know what that's going to be. I don't, you know, I don't talk a whole lot about heaven because I don't know what it's going to be like. I mean, we, they try to tell us in the Bible, but I don't think anybody really understands how cool heaven's going to be. All I know is that we will experience in heaven the full blessing of God. When you take the full blessing of God away from something, it's never going to be as good. And that's what he's talking about the ground. That's what sin does. Everything that sin touches, it destroys. Everything sin touches, it destroys. I was on my way to my mechanic. My mechanic is in Rockville, and um, he goes to our church. He's a great guy. I love him. I was on the way to Rockville, and I was getting ready to go through the S-curve in Lyford, and, and there's a little church there right before you go through the curves. And he's usually got some really cool things written on his sign. And one day I was driving by, and his, he, I read this, and I thought, man, that is perfect, and I never forgot it. It's, and I've told you this before. It said, sin fascinates, and then it assassinates. I mean, in one sentence, that, that is the perfect description of sin. That's exactly what it does. Sin looks good. Sin can even feel good for a season. You can, you know, you can, it, it's shiny, it's pretty, it's attractive, it's, you know, it's, it's what you want. It's, uh, you know, who's going to find out or who's going to be hurt by it or whatever. Nobody's going to know or even if they do, it's not that big a deal. And then 
you, you, you take the bite of the apple, you, you pick up the shiny thing, whatever it is, you give yourself to it, and the next thing you know, things around you are dying. Relationships are dying. Your, your spirit is dying. There's, there's some part of you or your spirit that's going, wait a minute, this is all out of balance. This is out of kilter. This isn't good. And, and that's what sin does. Everything it touches, it destroys, which brings us to the first reality of a broken world, and that is work can be painful. Work can be painful. You just start to wonder, what did Adam and Eve think as God is explaining to them and as they transition from this world where everything was perfect and now they're in the fallen world. Now they're in a world where they're gonna have to work and toil in a different way. They went from this idyllic setting to a setting where the ground is cursed. That's just not good. And this transition is gonna be difficult. And so, as I thought about cursed ground, it, it conjured this image in my mind of me when I bought the first house I ever owned. I had a little, uh, what my father would refer to as a beagle hound, had a beagle hound named Brittany. And she was sweet, but she couldn't be left to, you know, she had to have a, a, a fence or else we're in trouble. And so, in order for me to really let Brittany go out and do what she needed to do, I had to I was going to have to build a fence in the backyard of this house. So, um, you know, I've, I mapped it out. It's going to take about 20-plus post holes, right? So I go get uh, a man's best friend, a set of post hole diggers. Oh, yeah. And I start digging. And, and the first bite into the ground, the ground is hard. Like, it, it won't, it, it, almost, my, the, it almost bounced, you know. And I'm trying to dig, and I'm, I'm it's just not happening. And eventually, I get a little bit, at least to make me think that I'm getting somewhere. And about the time I think I'm making some progress, I go down into the hole, and it stops. And I hear that sound of metal hitting stone. And I'm like, come on. That's when I got introduced to one of these. Anybody know what that is? That's affectionately known in the trade as a spud bar. You do not want to know what this is. You don't want to handle one of these. You don't ever, ever want to have to use one of these. It's heavy. It's about five and a half, six feet long. I don't know if, how, how well that picture's coming through for you, but it's chiseled on one end. And so what you do is you put that in the hole and you start pounding down into the, into the stone. And it breaks up the rock little by little until you can reach down with your hands and pick it out. 20 plus post holes with a spud bar. The ground was cursed. I would find out later that my particular house was the last one built in the subdivision, and all the construction guys, when they were building the other houses, used my lot to dump all their rocks and stuff. And so my house was, was built on that, and it was, trust me, it was no good. It was painful. My arms hurt. My shoulders hurt. I mean, this was a several-day process. There was nothing that felt good on me by the time I got done wrestling with the, the post hole digger. And, and the spud bar and stretching the fence, I was done. You know, and at that point, Brittany wasn't quite as special to me anymore. Um, through painful toil, you will work. Those of you who work with your hands and those of you who work outside, you get this. Those of you who had to be outside at work Friday, I salute you. 95 degrees, I mean, it's like breathing water when you walk outside, just unbelievably hot. Those kind of days, even if you're not working hard, it can drain you. 
As bad as that is when it's really, really cold. When I'm driving by workers in my car and I'm all toasty and they're out working and it's cold, I'm like, God bless you, brother. I mean, goodness gracious. Or worse yet, I think, is the wind. When you have to work in the wind and it just beats you around all day and you come in and you're just worn out. And so, you know, a lot of you can identify. You're like, yeah, Brett, I know what it is to work hard. But maybe you work in an office. Maybe you work with your hands, and you're like, yeah, Brett, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I can relate to the whole thing. I mean, I did get a paper cut last Thursday. Does that count? You know, does that, is that the toil we're looking for? Not exactly. I've got some accountant friends, and um, this is what I know about my accountant friends. They work in the office. They work a normal work week some of the year, but then the, the season rolls around where it's, it's tax time. And I just know from my, my, my accountant friends that when tax time rolls around, you're not going to see them. Uh, my accountant, the guy that does my taxes, I've said, hey, let's, we need to go to lunch. He's like, let me get through tax season first. There's no way I can do that right now. And it's just, you maybe you have one of those jobs where, you know, your job swells from 40 hours a week to 70 or 80 hours a week, and you just drag yourself home at the end of the night and kind of fling yourself in the direction of the couch and if you can hit it, you just stay there. And if you're going to eat that night, somebody's going to have to bring it to you because you just don't even have the energy. That's how bad it can get. You're exhausted through painful toil. You will work. There's just something about that phrase, painful toil. In the Greek language, there's an emotional side to it. Um, you know, to better understand this, I would ask you to think with me about a, an ancient farmer, you know, before the advent of tractors and things like that. An ancient farmer who, who somehow works to plow up or tear up the ground enough to be able to put a seed in the soil. And he works himself silly trying to get the ground parted. And then he comes behind that and he works hard to get the seeds in the ground. And then he puts it all back together and then he steps back. And that's all he can do. And now the emotional toil starts. Now he starts thinking about, okay, i got to watch the sky for rain. And, and I, I hope, you know, and now there's, there's fretting and there's stress and, and there's all kinds of worry. Because if these crops don't grow, my family doesn't eat. And in that, there's this emotional stress that this farmer goes through. Perhaps you have experienced that in your work. Perhaps you said something like, man, if we don't make any money on this, we're in trouble. You, you might have said something like, you know what, if we can't make the payments on this, we're in trouble. It's the student who says, what if I don't pass organic chemistry? It's the med student who says, I've got a friend that's his son is, a, is in med school right now, and, and one of the fears is, you know, we hope he doesn't wash out of med school because the, the student loans we've got are unbelievable, right? Like, we need him to become a doctor so he can help us pay for this stuff. I mean, and so you worry and you stress and you fret. It's painful, emotional toil. Welcome to work in a broken world. That's what it's like sometimes. Now, the thing about work being more difficult, and it's going to be painful sometimes. If, you, if you're like me, you were always taught, well, you know, hard work always pays off, right? Weren't you taught that? Hard work always pays off. But here's what I know. You can do all the hard work doing a garden. You can plant the seeds and all that cool stuff. But you know what happens? Weeds show up. Thorns and thistles show up. One just has a sneaking suspicion that when Adam and Eve cleared away the thorns and thistles that first time after the fall of man, and they're expecting everything to be like it always was, and then the thorns and thistles come back. 
And they're thinking to themselves, what's up with this? I mean, this is no good to anybody. I mean, like we can't eat these thorns and thistles. They're stealing good nutrients from our soil and from these other crops we're trying to raise. They're in the way. This is not good. This isn't chaos, uh, order, and satisfaction. This is chaos, order, and then the chaos comes back. Right? That's not good. So the second reality of a broken world, first reality is it's painful. Second reality is work can be incredibly frustrating. Work can be incredibly frustrating. You work to create order out of the chaos, and the chaos comes back. And sometimes you you deal with it over and over and over again, and you just want to throw your hands up and say, when is this going to be over with? So I'm thinking specifically about a student who has to do a research paper. And the way research papers start, they start with several ideas, and you're trying to form one big idea that you're going to make this argument or this point. And so you've got all these resources, maybe a couple of books, you've got some notes you've taken in class, you've got a, a thing on a, a CD or a disc of some kind, you've got some stuff stored away on your computer, some notes you've scribbled, you know, you talked to a friend and you took a note or two, and you're going to try to bring all of that into this line of reasoning. Right, And then as, as the thing starts to kind of take shape, now it comes time for me to type the paper. And then I come to this one place, and I'm, I didn't expect to take a turn here, but I'm going to because I want to investigate that. And then you're, you're wrapping things up, and you're coming to the end, and then you're almost done. And then you run into this on your computer. Ooh. You know what computer people call that? B-sod. You know what B-SOD stands for? Blue screen of death. That's what they call that, the blue screen of death. Now, if you're a PC guy, that's what you see. I'm a Mac guy, so we have our own version of that. We call that PWOD. That's PWOD, pinwheel of death. Either one of those is not good, right? Your computer's showing you that. It's a problem. It's not a good thing. And if you've worked on a paper and you're seeing that, you're freaking out because it's just not good. You've got hours invested in this project, And this happens. To call this frustrating is a huge understatement and an insult to the word frustrating. Uh, Maybe you're not a gardener. Maybe you're not a student. But you have one great-looking yard, right? Like you should work for the Cubs or the Reds or the Cardinals. or You should should be treating someone's uh, fields, right? Like you are a greenskeeper. You've got it figured out. You work all day on your yard. You're meticulous about it. Everything's perfect. I saw a guy one day, I hope this isn't you, because if it is, we need to seriously have a talk. But I saw a guy one day that had a gravel driveway. He had stretched a string, the full length of his driveway, and he was edging that thing in a perfect line. His yard was beautiful. You ever had one of those? And you water that thing, and you get ready to go to bed that night, and you wake up the next morning, and you got this kind of nonsense going on right here. What is up with that? Moles. I hate those things. I hate them. Groundhogs. Hate them. I got a groundhog problem right now. There's a groundhog living under my house, and we are about to do some business, me and the groundhog. He's already chomped a hole. uh, uh, He's already tore up an extension cord. Not cool. Not cool. Can you say Caddyshack? Yeah. Yeah. It's going to happen. So frustrating when you've worked so hard to bring order out of the chaos and the chaos comes back. Now, for some of you, that maybe is a person. For some of you, maybe it's the culture that you're in. For some of you, it's just this, you know, random uh, thing. But no matter what it is, it can be very, very frustrating. Now, we all know 
what the frustration feels like, but the question is, why are we frustrated? Why are we frustrated? Why do we get that way? What, what's at the heart of the frustration that causes us to become so worked up? To answer that question, I want to leave Genesis for just a minute. I want to go to Ecclesiastes because the writer of Ecclesiastes is going to answer that for us. Ecclesiastes 2. He has a unique relationship with work. I want you to hear this. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. Now, this is big time now. This isn't some guy with a garden box in his backyard. My man is working on parks, okay? Reservoirs that... that Feed the flourishing trees. I mean, this guy has accomplished some things. He's made some money. He's got some influence. He's had some great achievements, which is why what we read next is so shocking. Look what he says next. So I hated life. That's odd. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me. In other words, I hate it because I can't take it with me. Third reality of work in a broken world is that work can feel empty, meaningless, like the chasing after the wind. So here is what I think is happening in Ecclesiastes, and here is where I think we really get some help. When you attach your sense of identity, your sense of value, your sense of worth and significance and purpose to your work and the results specifically of your work, you are setting yourself up to be in the same place that the writer of Ecclesiastes found himself. We often try to use work to do something in us and for us that work was never intended by God to do. The writer of Ecclesiastes said, I did all this stuff. I built this stuff. You know, at the end of the day, I'm going to lose it. It's all empty. It's a chasing after the wind. Question, why do we get so frustrated? Is it possible that we get so frustrated because we attach our sense of worth and identity to the result of our work, which oftentimes we have no control over? And when you get there and it doesn't go well, you don't say, Oh, you know, a student, when they walk out, let's say a student studies for a test, and she thinks she's ready. And she gets in, and she takes the test, and you know how kids are when they leave a, after a test. They compare. They talk to, did you get question five, or, you know, how did you think you did on that? And she studied, and she did really well on everything but one particular section, and either she didn't study for it right, or she didn't understand it, or she didn't anticipate it, but that's what tripped her up. But you know what they don't say? They don't say, I failed that particular part of the test. That's not what they say. What they say is, I failed. I'm a failure. That's the problem. See, when you miss the sale, 
when you miss the goal, when you don't hit the target, when you, don't, when you set a sales goal and you don't reach it, when your boss says, hey, this is what I need you to do, and you, you're unable for whatever reason to get there, that's where we come away and we say, I'm a failure. You are attaching your significance to the results of your work, and that is a dangerous game because it's going to usher you right to the feet of the writer of Ecclesiastes who said, that's meaningless. I hate it. You don't want to be there. And some of you, that's where you are right now. You're saying, you know what, I hate it. It's just chasing after the wind. It's never fulfilling. So what do we do with this? We have to understand how this works mentally. And another thing is that how it really works itself out in its entirety in our lives. Uh, thankfully, the writer of Hebrews hits rock bottom. <laughs> and you hear that, and you're like, Brett, you're a nice guy, rooting for him to fail. No, he learns something, and he's going to write it to us. He's going to tell us what he learns. You want to you learn great lessons, talk to somebody who has had some, uh, some downfalls in their life. They're, they've learned something. They're, they're going to be ready to tell you about it. I'm thankful that he learned this critical lesson because he shares it with us, and the lesson is, some, is really probably what some of you are desperate to know, and this might be the reason why God has you here this morning. This lesson can be a game changer. And it can bring freedom from the, from the guilt and the shame and the, just the experience that we have sometimes. We're so desperate to experience good stuff. Here's what he says. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This, too, I see is from the hand of God. The key phrase there is in their own toil. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. We have two options when it comes to work. Option one is to go along with the, the writer of Ecclesiastes and how he described things at first, attempting to find significance from our work, from the success, from the achievement, from the money, from the reputation that it affords us. Option one, that's what it is, and it leads us to the emptiness that the writer of Ecclesiastes talks about. Option two is different, and it's the lesson that he learns later in his life. He says this is the very best that you can do, that you not find your satisfaction from, but you find your satisfaction in your work. In your work. In doing the work. In the effort. In the process. The satisfaction is found there. That is what will give you this sense of fulfillment and keep you from this sense of emptiness that we can all feel sometimes about our work. It is a subtle, but it is a massive difference when you can nail this down and you can get this right. I would ask you to answer this question. My work matters if. How would you answer that question? My work matters if I succeed. My work matters if I win. My work matters if I make money. My work matters if I'm recognized. If those are your answers, then I'm telling you, it's not long before you run into a place where you feel meaningless and empty and you feel like you're just chasing the wind. So how would you fill in that, that, that sentence? And what might be a better way for you to fill in that sentence? I would like to suggest some different ways that you could fill it in. My work matters if I bring my best. My work matters if I bring my best attitude. My work matters if I bring my best effort. My work matters if I bring my best skill to work. And I seek to find my satisfaction in the work, not from the work. 
A subtle but mass difference, and it's a shift that I hope that you will make. It might provide the freedom from the guilt and the shame that you feel from trying to perform and succeed all the time. That's where that we are geared to perform, and we are geared to succeed. There's a lot of pressure on us to succeed because we are attaching our sense of value and identity and worth to the results of our work. Now, here's the question that that leads us to. How do you bring your best to work? How do you bring your best attitude, your best skill set, your best effort um, to a difficult work environment? Because it's quite possible that somebody's listening to me right now, and this is what you're thinking. Brett, nice talk. Love you, brother. So cute. But you have no idea where I work. You don't know how hard it is. You don't know what the people are like. You don't know what I go through every day. And you're exactly right. I don't know any of that. I told you I would give you three realities of work, and then I would give you one way that God makes the difference. I'm about to do that for you. Back to Genesis 3. We're going to wrap this up. Let me give you a little Bible study tip. Anytime you're reading along in your Bible and you start seeing the same word or the same phrase over and over and over again, you need to circle it. You need to make note of it. You need to see the writers trying to tell you something. Okay, and we get that in Genesis 3. I want to point out three things that you see in Genesis 3. You see the phrase, you will eat food, or some variation of it. Three times. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Another place it says, it will produce thorns and thistles, and you will eat the plants of the field. Another place it says, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. You will eat you will eat, you will eat. Question for you, who makes the crops grow? God makes the crops grow. You can work as hard as you want. You can bring as much skill to it as you want. You can plant every seed, the equidistant from each other, the right depth in the soil. You can position your, your, your land to be perfectly lined up for sunlight. You can hope for the best rain. But at the end of the day, even when you do everything perfect, God is the one who makes things grow. God is the one who brings the result. The one way that God is involved in our work is found in one word, and this is the word, provision. God provides. God provides. He provides the results. God is the one who makes the crops grow. God is the one who controls the results. It is a matter of his provision, and this is true no matter what you do. So if you're in real estate, then you need to understand you have no control over the real estate market. If you're a teacher, you have no control over the effort that your students put forth in class. If you're a coach, you have no control over how much effort or energy or passion your your athletes are going to bring to whatever sport you're coaching. If you're a parent, you surely know that you can't control the decisions your kids make, right? And if you're in medicine, you, you are not in control of how someone's body is going to respond to the medicine that you give them. You're not in control of any of those things. You don't control those things. Those things are in God's hand, and, that, and God is involved in our work in the process of providing for us. How is it that we can bring our best? That's really the question. How, how do we bring our best effort, our best attitude, our best skill to difficult work environments? It is to understand that we can only control what we can control. There is so little in life that you control, but there are some critical things that you do control every single day. Young people especially listen to me. You control your attitude every single day. 
You control your approach to your work every single day. You control whether or not you are kind to other people. You control whether or not you will bring your best to bear. You control whether you're going to be happy or sad that day. You control those things. There is freedom here. There is freedom in saying, I'm going to bring my best and I will find satisfaction in that. God's role in my work is to provide the result for me. Now, we're going to wrap up here in just a minute. There's a second element to this, though. Just before God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden to work the ground, he does something for them. I want you to see this. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, they already had clothes, right? But I told you that God put a tree in the garden. Does anybody know the name of the tree? The name of the tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, so what happens when you live in a perfect world and God puts this tree there and he says, don't touch it. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch it. The devil comes along and says, hey, why don't you eat from this fruit? And they said, oh, we were told not to touch that. And the devil does with Adam and Eve what the devil does with you and me. He gets them convinced that God is holding out on them. See, he doesn't want you to have this because he knows how good it is. And God's holding out on you. That's when we fall. That's when we make mistakes. We get selfish. So Adam and Eve in this perfect world partake of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And all of a sudden, they're, see, when I was raising my kids, and you probably likely did this too with your kids, don't you try to keep your kids from evil things? My kids are little. I don't want them watching certain shows. I don't want them listening to certain music. There are certain little kids that say words I don't want my kids to say or use. So we wouldn't be around those kids, right? I'm trying to keep my kids innocent as long as I can. I don't want them to know what evil is. But then one day, Adam and Eve eat from the fruit. Their eyes are open. They look down, and what are they? Naked. Now, naked is evil. See, when you don't know what evil is, naked's not bad if, if you don't know what evil is. But now, we know what evil is. Now we're naked. Oh, my goodness. So they make leaf coverings for themselves. Now, you just, the Bible can be fun if you let it be fun. I just start to imagine what it is when God shows up and he finds Adam and Eve and they've covered themselves in these leaves. You're, if you, those of you who are parents, you remember there's always an experience with each one of my kids where they did something bad and I'm going to have to discipline them for it, but at the same time it was kind of cute and funny and I couldn't help but laugh behind their back right? And, and it's like, oh my goodness, somebody's got to, I mean, you, come look what they did. You know, I'm going to have to spank them, but look at what they did, you know? I think that's where God is. I think he's disappointed that they've sinned, but I think there's a part of him that shows up and he, he sees what they're wearing. He's like, oh my goodness. And then he says, what are you wearing? And they said, well, we were naked. And then God asks a very interesting question. Who told you you were naked? You've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the thing that God does next is very interesting to me. God goes and an animal has to die because God is going to cover Adam and Eve with the skins of another animal. 
So the lesson that starts there, and you see it all through the, the Old Testament, all the way up to the New Testament, to Romans 5.8, where I was talking about earlier, you see the Old Testament runs red with the blood of animals, where we are constantly sacrificing things because of our sin. Because when you sin, something has to die. That's the message God's trying to teach. And so he, he kills this animal, and he covers Adam and Eve. Sin fascinates, and then it assassinates now, why is God doing that? God is providing, he's teaching them a lesson, but he's also providing. He says, what you've got on is not going to make it. You're going to have to work hard. You need something that's comfortable. You need something that's durable. You need something that's going to allow you to do the work that you're going to have to do. I'm going to provide for you, even though you've done this bad thing. And so Adam and Eve get new clothes. Here's what I think. I think that wherever you find yourself in work this week, I believe God wants to provide for you. I believe God will be present there. I believe God will provide the result that is necessary for you and for whoever is around. I believe that. I think that he will, will give you the best for you. So as you work to bring order out of the chaos, God is going to be present in that. He'll be with you to provide. You are not alone. Let's finish where we started. I, want, I showed you some clippings from uh, the Time Magazine article. I want to give you just a couple more and we're, and we're done. The, the, the magazine kept going. Even the most moderate estimates of automation's progress show that millions of people will have to adjust to leisure, non-functional lives. How many of you are living that leisure, non-functional life? I have not found that yet. It goes on. A switch that will entail both an economic wrench and a severe test of the deeply ingrained ethic that work is the good and necessary calling of man. Now, these predictions, a lot of things weren't correct, but one thing they did get right, it is our calling to work. We are reflecting that we are made in the image of God when we work. Work is good. So as you work this week, may you experience the presence of God's provision in your work. May he give you what you need to do your best. And do not, do not attach your identity and your significance and your purpose to the result. Don't look toward what you can get from work. Look at what you can find in the work. That's where your significance is. That's where you glorify your heavenly father. That's where you bring your best. Your best attitude, your best skill, everything else. You focus on what you can control and let God take care of what he is responsible to take care of. Let's pray together. Father, a bunch of workers in here this morning, and some of them are going to go into work tomorrow morning or maybe even tonight into bad situations or hard situations, situations they're not looking forward to. I pray that today has maybe helped them with their attitude. I pray that we will begin to choose a different attitude as we approach our work, that we can see it as a way that we can glorify and honor you, that we have some control over how, what we choose when it comes to attitude and how hard we're going to work. Father, you are the one that is responsible for the result, and we trust you for that result. May we honor you by the way we live our life this week. We pray it all in Jesus' name.